0: Hi and welcome back to OA on Air, the official podcast of O'Neill and Associates. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week we have 321 Go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with Chef Bruce from the Boston Harbor Hotel on the 30th annual Boston Wine Festival, and of course another edition of Two Minutes with Tom. First up, 3 2, one go.
1: Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321Go on OA on Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321Go, we take a cautionary look at Venmo, the mobile payments app with its own social media network built in. The problem: if you're using Venmo, it's very possible you're telling the world much more about yourself than you should. We'll discuss. And Business coach and networking expert, Dennis Charles, joins for a quick but helpful overview of his most powerful networking techniques. He's the author of the book, Word of Mouth, and he's here on 321GO. Finally, President Trump takes to the airwaves for his first ever Oval Office speech to make the case for a border wall with Mexico. We'll discuss how the media covered the milestone event, even though the speech itself was largely uneventful. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on Air. Cayenne. speaking of milestones, mm-hmm. we're looking down the business end of episode 30 right here. Episode 30. That's right. Three Yay. times ten. Yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are. Still standing. All right. Let's get to it. All right, Kyan, let's talk about Venmo. It's the mobile payments app. It's owned by PayPal, very social media oriented. There's a sort of real built in social media network. It's very handy uh, to pay so, uh, for goods and services, to pay friends. I know you use it, I use it occasionally. Give me a typical use for Venmo, or, or, or maybe atypical.
0: All right. Typical use is I'm class mom in the class, so the parents pay me via Venmo for teacher gifts and things like that, which makes my life a lot easier. Don't
1: get me started on the, on the <laughs> mandatory teacher gifts scan that's going on in America. All right, That's for a different this episode. Is me setting that aside for future reference. Um,
0: Atypical was this year. My dad, who lives in Florida, um, normally sends us money to go do something fun or go on a trip or something. Um, and he called me and he said, "Look, I don't have any checkbooks. Like, I'm gonna have checkbooks in like two weeks. I'm just gonna Venmo you what I would normally send you." And I was like, "Okay."
1: No problem. That's great. Hey. you got them. You got the, it even faster. Got it even faster. No need to stay, pay for postage. So, so very handy. As the Washington Post reported last month, it does very well what it's supposed to do. It lets friends exchange money quickly and easily. However, by default, by default, it posts those transactions in a social media feed, and and, and you have to opt out. Meaning, you sign up for Venmo, and if you don't know any better, and most people don't then automatically the transaction, what you did with whom, for what, is posted into a feed that everyone can basically see, or at least all of your friends. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but as well as the little quirky emojis and descriptions, and sometimes embarrassing things that you say about these transactions, yes. if the whole world were to see them, because you know that's not really the intent. Um, so my my thing is, I think the best thing you can do right now to preserve your privacy, forget about Facebook, it's lock your Venmo transactions so so they're only visible to yourself and the person you're transacting with. You can't do that. It's not by default you've got to go in and, and change the settings because everyone can see, otherwise, bottom line, everyone is seeing what you're doing. And I can't think of something, more telling about an individual than how they're spending money and what they're saying between friends as they're as they're paying them back a hundred bucks.
0: So you've been on a Venmo tear this. I kind of have been. First of all, I was always aware that everything I was, was public. Embarrassed
1: when I saw some transactions <laughs> by people I know, I'm like, yeah, I bet they don't want me to know that they did that.
0: I guess I feel like because I knew it was public, I always thought it was strange, but I never got into much detail as to why I usually sometimes I would just default to like an emoji smiley face. Um, Sometimes you can you can turn off individual transactions. You can make those private. However, since you came in in a bit of a rage about this earlier this week, I have I, along with a few other people in this building, have switched all of ours to private.
1: It may have been a kerfuffle. I wouldn't call it a rage.
0: It was. It was like a, a mini a, a mini tear. Well,
1: I'm, <laughs> I'm not on a campaign or 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 a, a vendetta. I'm not boycotting. I'm I use Venmo. I can. Conti- I will continue to do so. But I'm use it a- safely. So lock your Venmo purchases. Lock your Venmo.
0: Go to settings. Feed. Go to privacy. Switch it over to private.
1: Absolutely. All right. All right, up next we have with us Dennis Charles. He's a business coach, an area director for BNI Massachusetts, that's Business Network International, and author of Word of Mouth, uh, a terrific book that I have on my Kindle app about marketing. Dennis, it's great to have you with us.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, Cosmo. Thanks so much for having
1: me. All right, terrific. Now, so you're you're a leadership figure in BNI. That means, I know this, that means you can deliver a lot of information in about 60 seconds or less, which is great. Because I want to get as much out of you as I can in the next few minutes, I'd love you to give me your three top recommendations or tips for effective networking. Because uh, th- this company that we work for and this industry that we're in is 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 built on word of mouth. It's built on relationships and networking. Uh, you're one of the, uh, the the most knowledgeable experts in that area I know. I'd love to have your three top pieces of advice.
2: Excellent. Well one first recommendation would be to replicate success. You've got a, a referral source that's maybe made a great introduction for you or passed you a referral. And the thing to ask them is what is it I did or said that made me want to give you that referral. Why did you refer me? And you'll you'll get some great information about ways in which you can replicate that and do that over and again. Maybe you put a message out on social media or next time you're speaking you want to put that message out to the audience. Like make it easy for yourself.
1: Great piece of advice. You're, you're essentially learning a lesson from your own experience.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, former client of mine saw me speak one time and I went up to him and said, what is it that I did or said? And he said, you know, it was a thing that you said you work with young managers in companies and you can really boost them up. And he said, I had a young manager that was failing and that's why I brought you in. Excellent. All right. Number two. Number two is going to be based around, you know, the BNI Business Network International give us gain, offer value. A lot of times, you know, you're building your network and you're getting to build relationships, but uh, a lot of times it can be easy to slip into, like, taking, trying to sell things to people or trying to take things from the relationship, constantly be taken, but turn it around. You know, almost like the the John F. Kennedy thing, like, no, don't ask what your referral source can do for you, but what can you do for your referral source? That's right. Offer value. Make you know, make their life better in some way.
1: Yeah, a, a little catchphrase I've learned and, and I've used in, in, in sort of helping to coach my colleagues around networking, be a real go-giver, right? Absolutely. There's the go-getter, be a go-giver.
2: Yeah, give and give. And You know, and Dr. Ivan Meisner from, from BNI, he wrote the introduction to my book. Uh, I went up to him and, you know, he saw me speak at a conference and said, uh, I would love to write the introduction to your book. I was floored. At the time, I didn't think I was doing anything for him. But of course, you know, I talk about BNI throughout the book and talk about some Networking tips, and he wrote the introduction, and he used it. He shared it out. It was the biggest shared article I ever had because you know he has a reach of nearly a quarter of a million people across the globe. That's yeah.
1: that's 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 remarkable. And that book, by the way, word of mouth, available at Amazon.com. Word yeah. of mouth by Dennis Charles. All right, number three. Number three is follow up.
2: Uh, fortune is in the follow up. A lot of times, when you're attending a network event, you do really well. You make some great relationships. You take your business cards away, but you put an elastic band around them. You're, kind of throw them in the drawer, and you forget about them. The follow-up is key, having a strategy, and the strategy is really key, a strategy to follow up. So is it a phone call within 24 hours? Is it a follow-up email? Is it linking on social media? Getting to know each other, and then getting together face-to-face. You know, Most marketing, most networking you do, you you really want to have it face-to-face. So fortune is in the follow-up. I share an office um, over in Sudbury, with a guy called Justin Bittler of Harbor One Mortgage, and every day I'm just blown away by his follow-up. He spends probably three to four hours of his day just simply following up with his clients, delivering tremendous value, but he builds incredibly deep relationships, and when people need a mortgage, he's kind of the go-to guy.
1: That's great, that's great. All right, so replicate success, learn your own lessons, deliver value, and follow up.
2: My goodness, if you did that, you know, your networking is gonna go into the stratosphere, and that's the title of the book. You know, word of mouth, taking your business to, into the stratosphere. So e- thanks ever so much for having me, Cosmo.
1: Oh, excellent. So we've been talking to Dennis Charles, business advisor, business coach, area director for b Massachusetts. Dennis, thanks so much. Great to have you here.
2: A pleasure. Thank you.
1: All right, Cayenne. President Trump delivered his first Oval Office speech this week. Officially Tuesday evening, January 8th at 9 p.m. Uh, not very long, addressing specifically the border wall, making the case, and um, really pretty uneventful. Not not a lot new there. Nothing really new. Um, the threatened or the expected or anticipated maybe he will declare a national emergency, that didn't happen. Uh, we learned later that he kind of didn't, didn't even want to do the speech but was kind of pushed into it by his aides. Um, but sort of the, from a media perspective, the big decision around it, or a decision, I guess, that some outlets had to make was, do we give him the time? Uh, he's asked for time. Do we allow him to do that? Is it newsworthy enough? Is it important enough? Do we need, you know, media outlets make a decision. Do we give over the airtime to the president for this? I think it's kind of a silly exercise. In this case, it's his first ever Um So are you going to say no to the president? No, that's not really going to happen. So that was kind of uh, sort of a a, a silly consideration that maybe maybe they won't give President Trump uh, the time to speak. They did give um, uh, a response, unusual for an Oval Office speech. It's it's typical for the State of the Union. Unusual for an Oval Office speech, a response to the uh, uh, minority leader of the Senate and to the House Speaker. Um, But... In terms of how this thing was covered, what do you think? Pretty typical, pretty expected. Um, There was a tremendous amount of analysis that was not that useful afterwards. Nothing really new happened.
0: So a couple of things. One, I think that... There's a precedent for them to say, no, we are not going to cover this. Back in, I think it was 2014, they actually did not cover uh, Barack Obama's speech on immigration because they felt it was too political. Um, They could have pointed to that, particularly a president who regularly attacks the media networks, outlets, reporters, journalists, you name it. Um, I think they easily could have really said no. Uh, But I think because they are at war so often, or not at war, but more that he's declaring war on the press, I think they felt if they didn't, that it would mean something that it wasn't supposed to mean. So quite honestly, I think they folded um, and did it to avoid having that. Issue.
1: I guess so. I, I know it's I feel his
0: first one, but it was political, and the precedent was back in 2014. They said no to a different president yeah. for the same thing.
1: I guess so. It's it's it's, it's a good point, but just the, the news value of 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 this president for the first time addressing the addressing the nation, um, you know, uh, from the Oval Office on something he feels it's that important because you don't do that unless it's it's a a condition of great seriousness and this is what he's chosen right this is his this is his mission this wall so I think we saw it play out um, you know I read a couple different places nobody really seemed into it on either side the surrogate speakers honestly afterwards that I watched Rick Santorum uh, he was on uh, uh, I think he was on CNN and then you had uh, Lindsey Graham on Fox News they looked like they were they were they were being held hostage or something they looked yeah. Rick Santorum looked physically in pain uh, <laughs> delivering the talking points nobody was into this nobody believes in it from how they looked in the coverage last night
0: well and it's what's interesting about the speech is it was supposed to make the case for the wall and he actually didn't even talk about the wall until well into it he talked about everything else that he wanted to do for to secure our borders and and improve things which to me says he knows, or at least his staff knows intrinsically, that the wall isn't the thing that's playing, even you know, particularly past his base. Yeah. Um, he didn't. He didn't start with that. He, it took him a while to get there. He was unenthused, which is not surprising. He's not great at the teleprompter and never has been. It's not where he's most comfortable. He's better off the cuff at a rally. Yeah. Um, For what it's
1: worth, neither is uh, Nancy Pelosi.
0: No, and you know the the whole. Them sharing a podium, it looked a little sad. (laughs) Um, And her eyes were
1: like... And
0: I think that they didn't really know. I think what they expected from his speech was different than what they got. So I feel like their response wasn't really as appropriate as it could have been, which isn't their fault. But to me, it was the, the story around it was, will they, won't they? Will they, won't they run it? Yeah. That was more interesting than what actually happened because no news was made.
1: All right, Kayanne, thanks. That's going to do it for this week. 321 Go was recorded in Studio 108, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masera.
0: That's all for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Chef Bruce on America's largest running wine festival.
3: Friday, January 11th, marks the opening reception of the 30th annual Boston Wine Festival at the Boston Harbor Hotel. The Boston Wine Festival is one of the oldest food and wine pairing events in the country. In OA on Air, today is honored to welcome Chef Daniel Bruce to our studio. Chef Bruce is the founder of the Boston Wine Festival and the executive chef of the five star Boston Harbor Hotel. Welcome, Chef Bruce. Great to be on air. So you're renowned for your talents in pairing food and wine. What inspired you 30 years ago to start the Boston Wine Festival?
4: Well, I came to Boston from New York 30 years ago. And of course, as you know, January, February and March uh, is the slowest quarter for all restaurants really in Boston, at least it was 30 years ago. And we thought it would be great to do uh, some sort of festive event that would attract people from not only Boston, but from around the world to um, visit our fair city because a lot of people think, oh, snow, ice, cold, they don't want to come. Well, fast forward 30 years uh, later, and we are doing more events and more um, uh, guests coming into the, the festival than ever. So I'd like to say we, we play a small part in, uh, in bringing that first quarter to life in Boston.
3: You certainly do. So the Boston Wine Festival is, is really a, a personal dining experience with a winemaker. Uh, tell us more about the concept.
4: Yeah, I mean, we did. We founded it as the Boston Wine Festival, but really, in essence, it's a series of intimate winemaker-hosted events. Uh, what does that mean? It means that winemakers from around the world come in and they host uh, the dinner. Either it has to be the winemaker or and the the winery owner. Uh, I will tell you just a few things that happen when when that takes place. It's like me coming to cook at your house, or if I send somebody. It's a big difference because now you have the the person that's the passion behind the brand. Uh, speaking to to you personally uh, about their experiences, their history, the color, the everything about the f- the the wine, and the in the winery, and it's an opportunity for the guests to come in. A few things that make it really special is that we have uh, the tables are usually eight to ten, so you're sitting with people you've never met before. Trust me, after six to eight wines, they're good friends of yours, <laughs> and they develop these long uh, friendships. Uh, A a couple things I see happen um, all the time is that because you're meeting the winemaker or the winery owner, if you're taking a trip to Napa, for example, or it could be south of France, it could be Italy, wherever, because I do have a cross-section of wineries around the world, um, you've met that person. So you almost have a personal invitation to go to that winery. So you, you have this VIP status when you go to the winery. So that's an extra perk that people don't always think of. So I'd say, even if you're not a big wine drinker, but you're planning a trip to some area around the world, you, should, you owe it to yourself to go on the website and take a look at it because, hey, it may coincide to, your, um, to one of your travel trips and it'd be a great opportunity to go to a winery and get a first-hand VIP experience.
3: Yeah, that's great. And you've, uh, through the years, you've brought together famous winemakers as well as many up-and-comers. And um, wh- what kind of memories stand out through the years?
4: Well, you know, what's happened over the years is I've developed these close friendships with the vintners. And, and I think it's because of one simple fact. I, my job really is to honor the wine. And what does that mean? It means I taste every single bottle of wine uh, that comes into the festival. I decide what course it's going to be served on. Uh, if they have a bigger selection, I, I narrow it down to, the, to six to eight wines. And, and I take copious notes. And I, I write the menu based on those flavor profiles of the wine. So in essence, I'm 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 putting wine uh, together. uh, Sorry, I'm putting food together uh, with the wine to make sure the wine uh, is the uh, the showpiece of the evening. And I've found that the winemakers have so many times said to me, "This doesn't happen." Chefs just write menus; they hope it works. You know, and of course, there are exceptions. But in general, uh, chefs don't have that passion for uh, wine as as I've developed over the years. Uh, And because of that, I've had strong friendships that now. 30 years later, when I, 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 call a winemaker, they always say yes, which is, you know, I don't take that lightly. I, I think that's uh, an honor that uh, has taken a long time to achieve. And I certainly don't take it lightly that I can get almost anyone and from around uh, the world to do a dinner.
3: Yeah. And your reach is far. That's for sure.
4: Yeah. I mean, so that's, you know, the right, like you said, it's not only just the superstars, you know, the, you know, the Diamond Creeks, the Gigaos, the Opuses of the world, Peter Michaels, etc. But, uh, It's also an opportunity to bring to Boston because even though it's entertaining, it's also there's an educational piece even though you don't even know it. You don't think it's educational. But you're meeting winemakers that may not even be known because their marketing budgets are low. They don't don't have the money to spend on anything except making the wine, which is tough because you still have to have a business to, to sell this wine. So every year... Uh, I do a Rising Stars dinner, and I, I I taste wines. I have winemakers are always coming into Boston, and when they come, the distributors and importers are always bringing to me to to taste through their portfolio. And there are always wines uh, I taste. Them. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I've never heard of this wine. And it's because they're either starting out or they just don't have enough um, money for marketing. And, and so I always do a Rising Star dinner every year. And and it's funny because over the years, some of these winemakers have become superstars. Mm-hmm. You know. And, and so I'm like wow in some small way maybe I played a part in getting these guys uh, at least their names out there um, it's also fun to have uh, you know a lot of there's a lot of women winemakers out there which I think is is fantastic they say that women have better palates than men which uh, I can't disagree with so uh, I th- <laughs> if you look at the wines that they produce it's uh It's pretty phenomenal. So it's great to have both men and women from throughout the industry come in. And for me, it's just a a phenomenal opportunity for me to meet them, for you as the guest to meet them. Like you say, it's a personal opportunity uh, uh, to go to these dinners. And in addition, we also do seminars. So if a winemaker comes in, like I have Michael Salachi from Opus coming in, and he wants to do a component seminar, what does that mean? It means that he wants you to taste each component of the Opus 1 blend and then you um, will have a better understanding. And then actually he puts it together this year, I I think he's gonna do it this year, that he lets you blend it. So you can see what kind of blend you would come up with. So, you know, part of this is an artistic sense too. So a lot of people really enjoy those type of seminars. Uh, And of course we have the opening uh, reception, which you mentioned Mm -hmm. uh, coming up this Friday, which is sold out. So if anyone is listening, is interested, on a Friday, we do have another reception if you're a reception type of person. And that's on the 15th of February called uh, uh, Uncorked for a Cause, which I'm actually partnering with um, Share Our Strength. So a portion of the proceeds will go to that, uh, that wonderful organization. Uh, so there are tickets left for that. And there's a lot of tickets left for other dinners, too. But you, should, you need to go onto the website at bostonwinefestival.net and peruse the calendar and choose wines that you like and choose ones that you've never had before. Yeah. Either way, you're going to have a great time.
3: The wine festival also has a lot of uh, kind of signature repeat events each year, uh, Battle of the Cabernets, uh, you know, things like that. Talk a little bit about some of those repeat events. They're, they're very popular.
4: Yeah. So, in addition to having what, what we talked about, which is the core events, which is the winemaker-hosted dinners, uh, I found over the years that it w- it was um, that there was a propensity for guests to want to go to a certain varietal. For example, people love Pinot Noirs. People love Chateau de Pops. They love Meritage blends. They love Cabernet. So. In 19, let's see, 1990, I founded 1991, one year after the festival, I started the, the Battle of the Cabs. And back then, I didn't even call it. I just called it the Napa Cab Dinner. And um, it was a battle between Napa and Sonoma. Now, over the years, it's just become the Battle of the Cabs, so the best cabs from California. And that dinner, they're always my beginning dinner. So this next week, which is... Uh, the 5th, 16th and uh, 17th no 17th and 18th Thursday and Friday next week uh, the Battle of the Cabs will have two dinners they're sold out on Friday Thursday There was a few tickets left and what it is is the blind tasting of Cabernets from Napa Valley primarily that's really where probably the best cabs in California are coming from uh, and you taste them blind and then at the end, when I go out and speak, which is another thing that happens at these dinners, I actually speak at the end of the evening about the experience and why I did this food with this, and and you know, I may talk about the vintner, for example. Uh, you get to vote on your favorite. So what's great is when you do it that way. Even though you may think of you know these well-known cabs that are going to be part of this um, dinner. There are, there are always surprisingly wines that you have never had before or you would never think that would even stand up to these that you vote for. So it gives you a, a sort of an eye-opening experience that, hey, listen, it's not just only about the brands. Very important, but also it's about um, you know choosing what wines you like to, t- to taste and what to drink. So that's a big one. We do an Old World, New World Pinot Noir, which is uh, next Wednesday, our first dinner. A few tickets left for that one, not a few, but that's a great one because... It gives you a side-by-side side comparison of four courses of an old-world wine, whether it's from Italy, whether it's from Austria, whether it's from you know, France, of course, with Pinot Noirs, or from Africa, uh, against a counterpart in America. And what I do is I taste through all these wines and come up with two wines that are similar in weight So that each course, there's a good comparison that you can make. Do I like this one from the old world? Do I like this one from the new world? So it's a great opportunity if you're a Pinot uh, lover to try eight different Pinots. I mean, who does that? Eight Pinots, well, maybe a lot of my friends do that. But uh, (laughs) just kidding. Uh, But it's a great opportunity to taste eight wines in a course of an evening paired with different foods. And then you can go, a lot of uh, times they make notes and they buy wines their home to, to enjoy because what a great opportunity to go through eight wines and you may like two or three of them maybe like all of them so that's another one Meritage Madness is of course proprietal blends that's a blending a Bordeaux blending of grapes uh, primarily Napa again I use for this one and that's always a very great uh, event and I think it's great value because Meritage blends are very expensive and I, I charge the same as I do for the Battle of the Cabs dinner so it's a great value for that one and that's coming up in two Fridays from now so that's the uh, what's that, the 25th, I think it is. Uh, then I have Chateau neuf de Pop dinners, which is also a very popular one. Uh, and I have two nights of those because they're so popular, just like the Battle of the Cabs. And Chateau neuf de Pop's is, is considered maybe the best value wine in the world for value. Uh, and I have two nights. One is a, a cross-section of all Chateau neuf de Pop wines. And another one is um, uh, Domaine Pagau in uh, and, uh Laurence will be here. Uh, uh, she's a woman winemaker owner of that uh, winery. And that's going to be fun. That will focus only on one. Um, boy, and I keep on going, I guess, yeah. because we had have, we have the best of Willamette. Last fall in, in September, I had the opportunity to go to Willamette Valley for the first time. And of course, I got there, and I'm like treated like a king, which I'm like I gotta get go, I gotta get out more if this is the case. And uh, <laughs> you know, I go to Do, I went to Domaine Drouin, uh, which is the Joanne family owns it from Burgundy. I went to Soder, which is Tony Soder, really well known for Etude. He used to be the winemaker at Etude, and now he owns Soter Vineyards. And of course, I went to Elk Cove, which is just outside of Willamette Valley. And uh, I tasted wines in all three places, and I actually had dinner at uh, Soder's, um hospitality. Um, uh, building they had, which was just beautiful. It was, it was raining, it was a rainbow, it was like one of those perfect nights. And of course there's like seven winemakers there and I said wouldn't it be great to do a dinner that's about the best of Willamette. So I have three Vintners coming in from uh, Willamette. They'll each take a course and then they'll all three do one course together. So it's three courses plus one as as a group. Uh, really looking forward to that one just because I spent some time with these um, people and it's funny because I find that Vintners are a lot more like farmers than you would ever think of because that's what they do. They they grow grapes on vines and they farm the land, they tend the land and they have such respect for the land. And I've, I've found that uh, they're doing a lot of minimal farming which means there's not a lot of pesticides used anymore which is for me fantastic having you know a family that you know I'm always concerned on what they eat. So it's nice to see that that is in the forefront.
3: So tell us a little bit about yourself. You grew up in Maine. Mm-hmm. Did you ever imagine that you would be the kind of signature chef of in and, and uh, around food and wine pairing?
4: you know i I don't really think of it that way. I guess your life always brings you in different paths. I think because I had sort of humble beginnings and you know I lived in a town of fifty two very small town. My dad's a main hunting and fishing guide. that's what he does for a living, lives in a three room house. We raised in a three room house with you know no it sounds crazy, no running water, and we right. had now house and you know. I think those are good, great things because it made me very self-sufficient. So I was able to do a lot of things on my own. I didn't rely on other people to do it because that's just how we grew up. Uh, so I think that sort of helped me as I sort of tackle these these big projects like the Boston Wine Festival and everything I do at the hotel to do it, thinking, "Hey, this can all be done as long as you." Yeah. Um, have a sense of, of what needs to be done. So,
3: Well, um, Chef Bruce, thank you very much. The Wine Festival runs from this Friday mm-hmm. through the end of March. And tickets are available online?
4: You can go online. On, I think the best way is everyone has a, a smartphone is www.bostonwinefestival.net. And when you go on there, you can go to events page, you can go to purchase tickets. I highly recommend going to the event pages first because I also write the content for the festival and I always write about one and a half to two paragraphs of each vintner that's coming and what wines they have so you have a better sense of what they are about and you can decide what to come to. So I would say you owe it to yourself to come to the festival. 30 years is a long time. I don't, I'm not going anywhere, but I'm saying 30 years is a, a spectacular lineup. I, I kind of picked my best my favorite wineries that I've had before and not had before for this year's 30th anniversary. So it's quite a a lineup.
3: Truly an honor to have you here today. I highly recommend the Boston Wine Festival and the Boston Harbor Hotel and anything that you prepare.
4: Well, thank you. And I look forward to seeing uh, as many of the audience at the festival this year as possible. Good. Thank you. Thanks.
0: now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. Two, two Minutes mi- with Tom.
5: Two Minutes with Tom. <laughs> I, don't need, I don't know how many weeks we've been doing this, but it's uh, been fun.
0: Uh, this is our 30th episode. Really? It is.
5: Can you believe that?
0: Yeah. Look at that. We're doing so, well. So are we
5: going to talk about the partial shutdown in government today?
0: Day 20. Day 20. Of the shutdown.
5: And today was payday.
0: Um, I think tomorrow is payday.
5: Okay. Yeah, that would make sense.
0: So there are going to be people missing so, checks. There uh, are going to be people feeling it a little bit about more.
5: People receiving checks with zeros. There are some nothing with zeros. Yeah,
0: yeah, there there are some some stories percolating out yeah. there, which is just really way to kick them while they're down. A
5: dramatic demonstration of not getting paid. Yeah, I got my paycheck today, but there was nothing in it but zero. Yeah,
0: that and, hurts. Uh, I feel like that hurts more.
5: It hurts. It's eight hundred thousand American citizens working as public servants for the U.S. government. In any number of agencies and departments across the country, so it, it, it's affecting the military. It's affecting, it's affecting people who are uh, receivers of WIC, women, infants, mm-hmm. and children's programming. Uh, it's uh, it's affecting people who are looking for care at their, you know, at their at their um, at their local hospital. If they're veterans uh, mm-hmm. or uh, senior citizens looking for a particular kind of care without coverage, it it's affecting. Um, airports. It's affecting airports and travel in in a huge way. And it's affecting people who, uh, I have a friend in in Florida who works for the SEC at the regional office. Um, She said to both me and my wife that things had slowed down since the Trump administration has come in as far as investigations into the private sector surrounding issues of fraud. But now she's been laid off uh, with no no coming back date in sight. So, and and she's a single woman, three kids at home, um, with without a paycheck, and uh, concerned about, you know, where she goes and how do they get food, pay the mortgage, or whatever it happens to be. That pressure point is, you know, is being felt in a very highly personal way, and so what happens, I think, to all of us, whether we're traveling um, by air because the TSA is affected, or whether we're traveling by air because. You know, the, the people who work in those towers are, are affected as they kind of glide planes in and out of airports. Mm-hmm. Important uh, jobs. Yeah, that's right. It, it affects people who, you know, could be anywhere with a national park or a national seashore, uh, you know, not making sure that they're going to be protected because there's nobody there to protect them uh, or to open or close down the facility. So it, it's really beginning to affect people nationally, uh, both those who work for the government and those who, you know, look to the government for you know, for an agency's assistance or for services, a, a service, and, and that service so often is is not felt. It's taken for granted, and when it's closed down, people are jaded by feeling it because it's a real, it's a real sensitive point.
0: And for so many federal employees who are actual employees who are, will most likely receive back pay, it's still tough on morale to come to work every day and know that you're not getting paid for your work. Well, and can,
5: can you imagine having be you know to be part of the TSA not getting paid? And expecting to be showing up, mm-hmm. providing a service of clearance and security at your airport or your railroad station or whatever it might be, and and you know you're putting your your life in their hands, and they're not getting paid. I mean, it's unbelievable in my mind.
0: And for the employees who are contracted employees, who most likely will not get any back pay, actually. Um, Ayanna Presley this week put forward legislation to say we need to figure out a way to take care uh, of them. Know, and
5: she's talking about people who are contractual employees doing work for the federal government agency or department. And, and this could be, and, and it's because Ayanna Presley is so concerned about it, most generally it's the back, back of the house people who mm-hmm. are doing maintenance in buildings, um, who are subcontracted to, who won't get paid for their service. And they're the poorest of, of the folks mm-hmm. of the working poor working for the federal government, and they're the hottest hit in a lot of ways. So good for her, and I applaud her effort.
0: Well, hopefully when we uh, come back next week, we'll be uh, not talking about the shutdown well, anymore. Maybe
5: we'll be talking about the shut- sh- shutdown being over.
0: That would be nice. Hopefully
5: that would be good. Yeah. Anyway, hey, a tip of the hat to Ayanna Presley and all the new members of, of Congress uh, who are coming to Congress in the most diverse way in the history of our country. We have more women, more people of color. Good for good for good for the the people of the United States absolutely for them
0: Thanks Tom bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Thanks for tuning in. If you can't make the Boston Wine Festival, but you want to get a taste of Chef Bruce's fine dining and wine pairings, be sure to visit Meritage Restaurant at the Boston Harbor Hotel. Don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.